warning, the following podcast, which contains strong language and mature content, is unsuitable for children or for the faint of heart. The subject matter discussed will be frightening and graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey spooksters and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara and as always I'm here with my ghoul friend Jessica. Hello! Hello. And as you guys can see by the title, this is part two into our coverage on the Eileen Warnos case. So if you have not listened to part one, you're going to want to pause this, go back, and then come back over here once you have checked that out. So I'm just going to go ahead and dive in. So kind of just like quick recap, part one, we ended with just went through all the mur- all the background, all the murders, all of that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So And she mentioned a perfect segue where all of the authorities are now like they're trying to look into these because that's a lot of fucking people who all were murdered similar ways in a very short amount of time. Oh, for sure. Yes. And one person in particular was very much like in this. And it was actually the captain of the Marion County Sheriff's Criminal Investigation Division. Jesus, long ass fucking title but his name was Captain Steve Beingar. And he knew about the other murders that are happening in the other counties. And he's like, okay, I've got a theory going because of all these similarities. He said, quote, we've got to be looking for a highway hooker, period, end quote. And this was based on the fact that, I mean, you guys obviously probably picked it up on listening. They had a lot of features in common, including that all of the victims were older men who had been robbed and two of them had had their pockets turned inside out. Three killings had been carried out using a small caliber weapon. Bullets recovered from the bodies were 22 caliber, copper coated, hollow nosed with rifle marks made by a right twist firearm. And then also the biggest fucking one was when they decided to swap composite sketches and they all looked the fucking same or very Mm -hmm. similar. So they're like, oh, shit. And so they knew that this was a serial situation and they had two women of interest. So Steve decided to, hey, let's go get this in the media. Let's have, you know, the papers run a story. And they reported they were looking for these two women. Who are these women? Eileen and Ty, obviously. You guys might might hear me refer to her as Lee because some of this, a lot of the stuff I read and watched, like referred to her that way. So I started just putting that in my notes. <laughs> but it's fine. It's fine. So they knew they were on the hunt for this, and like Jessica went over her rap sheet was 
insane. So it's not far-fetched that this was their gal. So my notes literally say biker bar time. So yes, they're going to go over to a biker bar. (laughs) So they had a surveillance team watching them just so because they actually they couldn't find Ty. So they were like looking for her slash trying to track Eileen, right? Mm -hmm. So they had their surveillance team sent over to Daytona Beach. And on January 8th of 91, a team of officers inside the Port Orange pub on Ridgewood Avenue found Eileen. They saw her. They're like, oh, shit, that's her. And the undercover officer who was there, his name was Mick Joyner. He saw her with a tan suitcase and she took it with her from like bar to bar because obviously she had nowhere to stay, (laughs) like hardly ever. So this was like pretty normal for her. And, you know, they they start socializing with her and just kind of watching her and stuff like that. And they notice right away she goes from being super friendly, super nice to very aggressive and violent. So scary, scary. And her faves that she had when she went out was Marlboro cigarettes, Bush or Budweiser beer. In a can. I like. I was like, I like how they spe- specified in a can. <laughs> I just think of like Emily Gilmore right now just being like, cans are not appropriate. <laughs> so she started chatting up with Mike and she was like, you know, talking about her suitcase and being like, this is everything. This was like my life. This had everything, you know, blah, blah, blah. So she was carrying it around. And so she also went to the last resort bar where they said she was sleeping on a vinyl car seat. So I'm like, is this car seat out of the vehicle? I'm really confused. That was outside of the bar. Probably. Mm -hmm. And yes. And so she would, you know, she obviously stayed the night there and had her suitcase. And Mike's obviously chatting her up and asking, being like, oh, like what happened? And he, you know, he says in interviews and stuff, he's like, yeah, she was talking about she was talking about how she and her girlfriend had broken up recently and she just really missed her and she really loved her, blah, 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 all of that. And so they stuck around, you know, similar areas. They were there through the ninth to the early, early night or late night, excuse me. And they did know that later on in that evening, they were going to be having like a large, there was a large party coming in and they were essentially like all scary bikers, pretty Mm -hmm. much. So they knew they would have to be like extra careful so nobody would like suspect anything, things like that. But fun fact, while she was at the Port Orange pub, two officer, like not undercover ones, like different ones. So Port Orange police officers. They came into the bar and they took they took Eileen outside and the Mike and the other officer undercover is like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Holy shit. We need them to not fucking arrest her right now because, yeah, they obviously are trying to work to to get in to, you know, zero in on her. Mm -hmm. So they call they have like a command post at the Pirate Cove Motel where pretty much all of these different police departments and stuff from all of these murders. So six different jurisdictions, they were all there trying to get this like figured out and get Eileen and, you know, all of that shit. 
they were like, did word get out? Is Eileen going to find out? You know, et cetera, et cetera. But they decided like, no, it was just kind of like shitty luck that Mm -hmm. no one leaked it or anything. And the dudes probably didn't even fucking know that they were there doing that. So basically, the Volusia County Sheriff's Office, one of those people, called Port Orange and told them. And they were like, do not arrest her. Let her go back in this bar. Like, let everything be okay. So the uniformed cops were like, okay. So they let her go back in. And the undercovers decided to, you know, let's get back in this. And they started talking with Lee and they got her a few beers and all of that. And it was said that she left around 10 p.m. that night with her, with her suitcase. And they offered her a ride, but she was like, nah, I'm good. So it's like, oh, okay. So then the two men, before she was like, you know, taken off, they they brought up this party that was happening with like all the bikers and stuff back at the bar and all that stuff. And they were like, hey, do you want to borrow our motel room to, you know, like take a shower, get cleaned up and stuff? He, <laughs> I remember one of the things I listened to it was one of those podcasts where it's like it had clips from like, mm-hmm. it's kind of like how Dateline is, goes back and forth between like the narrator and, you know, like interview type thing. And he was like, she stunk and she was so gross. So I took the opportunity basically is what he said to <laughs> yeah. use that as an in. And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> I watched Mick or Mike or whatever his name was do the interview. And he was like, I was told her to uh-huh. hook up with her, but I said she needed a shower first. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Right. But he and didn't then, frame it so, like that. He framed it like she smelled. <laughs> I was like, yeah, <laughs> rude. She was living on a vinyl seat in front of a bar. If she smelled good, I would be what a little sus- suspect of that story. Right. For real. So, yeah. So eventually she's like, all right, I guess I'll go. And then Larry Horzeppa of the Marion County Sheriff's Office swoops on in and tells her that she is being arrested. Not for these murders yet. But for a warrant for one of her many aliases, because she fucking used aliases like all the goddamn time. This is true. Under the name Lori Grody. And this was said to be related to the illegal possession of a firearm. And they, you know, kept their mouths tightly shut about the murders at the time, which we see this a lot in cases like this. They'll be like, oh, my gosh, they have a warrant. We're going to get them on that. So that way we can hold them till we can have our shit to charge them with the murder. Blah, blah, blah. Wait, wait. So one of her one of her aliases this is her sister's name. Yes. I mean, that's not awesome. But like, oh, yeah, there was a fucking dude. One of the dudes she one of her Johns, the dude fucking was like, here. If you'll stay out of trouble, here's my wife's birth certificate and ID. She never leaves the house, so she doesn't need these. What? Bruh. Yes. Yeah. Homegirl had a lot because, you know, she was doing that check fraud and all the other shit she was fucking doing. So she had a bunch of different Mm -hmm. fake IDs and shit. Which makes sense for her living on the edge lifestyle. Yes. Yes. So, okay, obviously they arrested her for that. They did not mention the murder at all because at this point, There was no murder weapon that they had found, and they did not know where Ty was. So they didn't have Ty, right? Because they're like, well, we got to get one of these bitches to talk. So, yeah. Because, like, at that point, they don't know because it could have been the flip way. It could have been fucking Ty was the one killing all these men. That's true. You know what I mean? They just just knew that it was these two women were involved somehow. Exactly. Exactly. Well, they do end up locating Ty on Thursday, January 10th. 
It was actually Major Dan Henry from Marion County Sheriff's Department that found her. Her sis, she, okay, so basically what happened was she went to her parents' house, but then ended up living with her sister in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And I was like, oh my God, the office. (laughs) I was like, maybe if she had a different life, she could have worked at Dunder Mifflin. Damn it. (laughs) Maybe. I mean, well, technically she probably could have, being honest. True, true, true. So Jerry Thompson of Citrus County and Bruce Munster of Marion County went up to Scranton to interview her, right? And when they got there, they, they, um, they found some stuff. So in her possession, among with other things, was a briefcase and a clock radio identified as the property of Charles Humphreys. And she also had items from this other guy who I'm going to mention like very, very quickly because technically Eileen was not ever officially connected to this dude. So there was this guy named Kirkus Corky Reed. And basically it was like similar to the other situations where it was like, dude disappears, they find his car, you know, but they don't find the body, et cetera, et cetera. Like Peter. Yes. So they might have found his body like a long time later, but like, I can't. No, I think Curtis, they didn't find either. But basically it's like weird how she has one person who we know is a murder victim stuff. And then now she's got this other dudes. But it was like so stupid, though, because like basically nothing. They just were like there was a thing with Curtis's family member. And it was basically like they just stopped giving a fuck pretty much, Mm. which I know. So it was like they just forgot about his case pretty much. And of course, when they were talking with Ty, they informed her of her rights and, you know, stated, you know, you're not being charged with anything at this time. And you're also not being granted immunity. There's no plea bargain type. There's nothing like that right now. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. We're just here to talk to you. And so she's like, okay. Well, when they're having their little talk, she actually agrees to testify against Eileen if this went to trial because she told the police that she, quote, she had sort of known about the Mallory murder since Lee had openly confessed that she had killed a man that day. But Ty was like, I told Lee, don't say anything else. Quote, I told her, I don't want to hear about it. And then anytime she would come home after that and say certain things, telling me about where she got something, I'd say, I don't want to hear it. Because she fucking knew. Fucking shady (laughs) shit, man. Like, seriously. Uh Uh-huh. She was a party, too. Yeah, exactly. And to follow up with that, she said to authorities, quote, I was just scared. She always said she would never hurt me, but then you can't believe her. So I don't know what she would have done, end quote. Which I'm at the same, like, play devil's advocate. Yeah. It's like, good point. She's a fucking crazy person <laughs> killing people. I was like, man, I just went really hard. And then the next statement was like, oh, okay. My bad. Yeah. Well, it's because it's like you feel both ways. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's just, it's like really frustrating when it comes to Ty. So Ty ended up going back down to Florida because she said she would help with this investigation. And how she would help was she agreed to having a wiretap in her phone because, of course, she was still talking to Lee and calling Lee and stuff, especially with her being in jail. So that way they could get a confession. They're like, get a confession, because then that's going to make this like a lot more smooth sailing for us and get justice for these victims. This will hit the nail on the head pretty much. So they were actually telling her all of this when they were flying back down. And to make sure, because she's obviously a flight risk, they had her on 24-hour surveillance, and they had paid and put her up in a hotel in Daytona. And, 
you know, all of that. So of course, when she reached when she reaches out to Eileen, Eileen's like, what the fuck? How the fuck are you affording this? Like, it's like $50 a night, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, I, you know, I got the money from my mom because I came back down to get the rest of my stuff. Oh. Uh-huh. And Ty was told to tell Eileen that authorities had been questioning her and her family and that she thought all of these murders here in Florida were going to be pinned on her, you know, and all of that. And because their thought was, hopefully, with Ty putting out this fake... I need help. Oh, like this fake distress, you know, Mm -hmm. statement, you know, saying, I'm in danger, danger, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that Eileen would confess. So, thing was, though, Eileen is actually not stupid, and she figured out pretty quick, like, she knew she was on a wire pretty much, so she started being, like, very vague at the beginning, and Ty would just have to be like, no, like, I don't know what you're talking about, like, it's totally fine, you know, all of that, blah, 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 you know. What I liked about that book I read was that it had compiled transcripts and stuff. The author like compiled stuff and I highlighted those in my Kindle. So I'm going to kind of read some of them to you. So yeah, better than me kind of recapping. It's a little more detail. Okay. So basically on this phone call, they're just having like their normal conversations. And this is when Ty is like laying on thick the paranoia stuff. Ty says, I know they're coming after me. I know they are. And Eileen says, no, they're not. Honey, listen, do what you got to do, okay? Because basically, eventually, Eileen's like, look, I I knew what was going on. If she did, cool. If she didn't, whatever. But she's basically like, I knew what was going on. So I was telling her, do what you have to do because I love you and I want you to go ahead and go on with your life type of shit. And Eileen says, if I have to confess, I will. And Ty asks, why in the hell did you do it, Lee? Ty, listen to me. I don't know what to say, but all I can say is self-defense. Don't worry. They'll find out it was a solo person and I'll tell them that, okay? Ty says, okay. And Lee says, you'll be scot-free. And then, you know, they're kind of talking more and stuff like that. And they bring up Richard Mallory. So they start talking about him. And she said, I knew for a year about the first one, at least. When you did it the first time, I should have said something. And Eileen says, well, you were confused and scared. Ty says, I know. Lee says, you're not the one and I'm not going to let you go down for something you didn't do. I love you too much. And then she go- Lee goes on to say, when I die, my spirit's going to follow you and I'm going to keep you out of trouble and shit. And if you get into an accident, I'll save your life and everything else. I'll be watching you. I probably won't live long and I don't care. Hey, by the way, I'm going to go down in history. Ty says, what a way to go down in history. And then, you know, more of their conversation ensues. And then she's Eileen's floodgates are starting to open. And she says, let me tell you why I did it. All right. And Ty's like, "Mm hmm. And Lee says, because I'm so fucking in love with you that I was so worried about us not having an apartment and shit. And I was scared that we were going to lose our place, believing that we wouldn't be together. I know it sounds crazy, but it's the truth. I just hope you find somebody that loves you as much as I do. I don't want you to live alone the whole rest of your life. You're a good person. When I have somebody I love, I love them all the way, and I love them with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind, and I'll do anything. I go nuts. Ty says, you're turning me against everybody. And then their conversation goes on some more. And she's like, 
Eileen says to to Ty, will you get over me? And Ty says, yeah, I don't think I'll have a problem. It'll be any problem at all. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and Lee says, OK, I'm sorry. I know this hurts. It is hurting you a lot. It hurts me because I don't have a family and I'm thinking about you. You got a family. I know. I wish I had you so I could hold you and kiss you and hug you and tell you how much I'm sorry. Here's a kiss. OK, I'm going to eventually confess. And then she says later, like, I was sure it was being taped the way she was talking. I felt it the way she was about to come back to Florida so quickly. She was, oh yeah, and I already mentioned this. She was staying in a hotel for $50 a night. Where did she get the 50 a night? So, you know, she ain't fucking dumb. She ain't dumb. She knows. You know what I mean? And it's interesting because like, Something you'll notice, especially if you've watched those interrogation videos and stuff, her main focus in the early part is to reiterate like a hundred times that Ty is innocent and had nothing to do with this. See, I, st- so. I stopped believing it. I stopped believing that Ty yeah. had nothing to do with this. Yeah, because it's like, I don't know, because I'm like, how can someone who's a serial killer like this How are you going to tell me they have the capability to go and kill people like nothing? Because she literally does not get any emotion, any kind of like regret, nothing. No tears on that, no emotion. But when it comes to Ty, it is like a 180. It is the opposite. So it's very interesting. But what I noticed too, I actually kind of got a little triggered when I was reading their phone calls because it's like she's very much being like, I killed these people for you. I did this for you, you know, like that kind of shit. And I'm like, no, no, no. You're not going to fucking put guilt on another person because you're a fucking psycho and you killed seven fucking men at least. Like, what the fuck? That is the ultimate (laughs) gaslight. Literally. So. Could you imagine? Could you imagine hearing that, though? You're sitting there and, like, your partner is just telling you, I did all these horrible things because I love you. I'd be like... It's Joe from you. I'd be like, as soon as you're arrested, never talking to you again. Goodbye. Right? Because like, <laughs> obviously she's helping at this point. Now, it's just that statement she said earlier when she was like, I should have said something. You knew for a year. This isn't like I suspected. Yeah. This wasn't like I maybe thought Eileen came home with blood on her clothes that she couldn't explain. And yeah. I just let it go. No, the woman walked in and was like, I shot someone twice today. Literally. And Ty was like, cool, don't tell people. Right? Like, what the fuck, man? You are a party, too. You are a party, too. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Triggered Mm -hmm. because she gets shit. She gets nothing. She gets nothing. Yeah. So, Eileen has some interact, well, quite a bit of interactions with different COs and stuff and staff at the prison and things like that. Well, there was an officer named Marjorie Bertolani, and she said one day she came across Lee and she was sobbing and she was super upset. And it was just a really weird interaction. She said that she had done something terrible and she wanted to get something off her chest. And so she asked Marjorie if she was a Christian, and Marjorie said yes. She stated, quote, she, she meaning Eileen, mm-hmm. proceeded to tell me that she had done some bad things and she was one of the people that was wanted on these murders. And I just kind of, I really didn't know much about the case. I knew she was our mystery guest, you know. We treat them just like anybody else. She said she wanted to go to heaven and she was afraid she wouldn't go to heaven and that's why she was telling me. That's why she wanted to confess to someone and she had told me, I killed six, not ten. 
bro. It's like, dude, you know they're going to go fucking tell their supervisors, you just said all this shit. <laughs> they like, legally have to. Yes, exactly. All right. So her interrogation started on Wednesday, January 16th, 1992 at 10 a.m. And she was appointed, as you guys are probably not surprised, public defenders. She was represented by Raymond Cass and Donald Jacobson. And then they also had an assistant public defender on the team named Michael O'Neill. And to Michael, she confessed to the murders of Richard, David, both Charles, Peter, Troy, and Walter, Gino, Antonio. But of course, with these, she was like, wait, wait, wait. It's not that I just went and killed them. This was self-defense. Right. And every time she claimed that she had killed them because they had become aggressive and she killed them out of fear because they were going to rape her or worse. And, you know, the whole conversation about Ty comes up and she says that she says, quote, I wouldn't have confessed if it wasn't for the fact that I don't want my girlfriend involved. I don't want you to think that I'm doing it because I love her and I'm trying to protect her or something because I'm not. I'm doing it because I love her and she's not guilty. I just want to get right with God again and give this. I'll put my trust with the Lord and with the people here so everybody knows, end quote. And Lee just kind of like went on and on and on for hours and hours and hours, even though her defense team was like, bitch, shut up. You are incriminating yourself. You're digging a hole. Stop it. (laughs) But she's like, nope, don't give a fuck. I want to go to heaven, so I'm going to tell all the tea, so fuck off. Well, just a couple days after the interrogation, there was another female officer. Her name was Susan Hansen. She was delegated to keep an eye on Lee because, obviously, for what's going on, so got to pay attention, you know, and with her history, like, they wanted to make sure, you know, she wasn't a suicide risk and all of that, and obviously, it's, they can't fucking hide that they're watching you, so, like, Lee knew it, and she started talking to her, and... Susan stated that Eileen said, quote, I just got sick of it. And if I didn't kill those guys, I would have been raped a total of 20 times, maybe or killed. You never know. But I got them first. I figured that at least I was doing some good killing these guys, because if I didn't kill them, they would have hurt someone else. And Susan also stated, quote, she Eileen again. Eileen was laughing a lot when she was talking to me, when she would talk about specifically how she shot the guy. The one guy with the 45, she just stood there. She was very, sometimes she would laugh. Sometimes she was calm in explaining this. Other times she would just get very excited. She was never sad in any way. Never once did she say, I'm upset about this. She just said, if I hadn't killed him, he'd kill other people. And I shouldn't be telling you this, but get this. I had these two guys that said they were cops, or at least they flashed me their badges. They picked me up and wanted sex, but didn't want to pay. I said, if I didn't, they'd turn me in. One grabbed my hair and pushed me towards his penis. We were really starting to fight, so then I killed them. Afterwards, I looked at their badges, and one was a reservist cop or something, and the other worked for HRS. Which, yes. So Walter was a reserve deputy in Brevard County, and Charles Humphreys, you know, worked for the Florida Department of Health. So, yeah. And it's just like fucking laughing. Like, that is so gross. Like, She's a oh gross my person. God. Literally. And then the medic there in the jail, prison, I know they're different, but I use them interchangeably. I'm sorry. <laughs> Said that anytime he saw her, she was like 
happy, cheerful, like jovial is a word that he used in it, like in multiple interviews about her. And she would brag about having slept with 250,000 men in the last nine years. That's a lot. Is that, I don't even know if that's like possible. I don't believe. I mean, I mean at that point, I'm just going to point out that there would be. No, she'd have like. She's she's just a liar. We know this because like, obviously, as like after the fact too, like her story changes so fucking much. Like true. OK, so obviously she was in jail, but finally. She was indicted for the murder of Richard Mallory on January 28th, 1991. And I have the indictment here for you. It's going to list all her fucking aliases. So here we go. The indictment read, quote, In that Eileen Carol Warnos, a.k.a. Susan Lynn Balovec, a.k.a. Lori Christine Grody, a.k.a. Cami Marsh Green, on or about the first day of December 1989 within Volusia County, did then and there unlawfully from a premeditated design to affect the death of one Richard Mallory, a human being, while engaged in the perpetration of or attempt to perpetrate robbery, did kill and murder Richard Mallory by shooting him with a firearm to wit a handgun. And then late February, she was charged with the murders of David, Charles, Troy, right there. And then basically they tried to, and then, you know, obviously the other victims too. And essentially her team tried to get a plea bargain and get it so death was taken off the table. But the state's attorney was like, fuck no, Florida in the 90s? Absolutely not. (laughs) So that was denied. So trial began for the murder of Richard Mallory on January 14th, 1992. Now... I'm not going to go through the whole trial, but I do have a couple of the like cliff notes highlights for you guys. So I kind of I think I kind of mentioned that like I thought about it for a second during part one. So Arthur, Dr. Arthur Botting was the medical examiner who did the autopsy on Mallory's body. And he said that he did not die right away, that it took from when he was attacked 10 to 20 minutes of pure agony for him to die. Yes. I mean, he's not a really good person, but like, I don't condone murder. I don't condone murder either. And on top of what we talked about, like I mentioned, Ty agreed to testify against her and, you know, went through all the things we talked about, all the things Jess talked about. And basically, she also mentioned that Eileen was not overly upset, nervous, or drunk when she told her that she murdered Mallory. So, again, with this theme of no remorse, right? Now, another person that was on her defense team was Trisha Jenkins. And she was the one that tried to tell Eileen, do not fucking testify. You do not have to go up like, no, 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 no. That will be all bad for you. Do not. But I'm sure you guys won't be surprised. She's like, nope, I have to. I got to tell my story. I got to confess to these because, you know, mm-hmm. fucking heaven shit. So she got ripped to pieces by the prosecution. And pretty much that guy, his name was John Tanner. He it was like anything, any kind of thing that would have made her credible in any kind of way. Gone. Dead. Mm. Out. Goodbye. And basically, like, she started, you know, she's got a temper. So she started getting pissed off. Right. And her defense team eventually had to be like, you know, you don't have to answer it. Like, you can invoke your Fifth Amendment right. And so she did after that and literally did it 25 times. 
like, bro, holy shit. And it's not the she record was up there we've seen. A minute. Yeah. And she was the defense's only witness. So when she got off the stand, pretty much everybody knew what the fuck was going on gonna happen, right? And the jury didn't they like deliberated fairly quickly. I think it was like I mean, actually I was kind of surprised how long it was because I think I read it was like 91 minutes or something like that, or 81 minutes. And I'm like, I just think of you when you're like, they wanted lunch. That's literally it. They're like, "Mm, no, thank you. I would like lunch. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And this all happened very quickly. So they came back and they said they found her guilty of premeditated felony murder in the first degree. And as everyone was leaving, she was fucking pissed, obviously. And she literally started yelling at them and was yelling, I'm innocent. I was raped. I hope you get raped. Scumbags of America. Oh, wow. So, right? That's so, like, she's a lot of a person. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. And they went ahead and did the penalty phase of her trial the next day. They were unanimous and they sentenced her to be executed by the electric chair by old Sparky because she's in fucking Florida. And then the judge confirmed on Friday, January 31st, this sentencing, he said, quote, Eileen Carroll Warnos, being brought before the court by her attorneys, William Miller, Trisha Jenkins, and Billy Nolis, having been tried and found guilty of count one first degree premeditated murder and first degree felony murder of Richard Mallory, a capital felony, and count two armed robbery with a firearm, hereby judged and found guilty of said offenses. Da 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 da. And the court, having given the defendant an opportunity to be heard and offer matters in mitigation of sentence. It is the sentence of this court that you, Eileen Carroll Warnos, be delivered by the sheriff of Volusia County to the proper officer of the Department of Corrections in the state of Florida and by him safely kept until by warrant of the governor of the state of Florida, you, Eileen Warnos, be electrocuted until you're dead. And listen to this last line, guys. And may God have mercy on your corpse. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Not on her soul? Damn. Like, holy fucking shit. That's a lot. That's savage, right? Right? Very much. Yes. Now, with these other indictments, she didn't have to go on trial again. So on Tuesday, March 31st, she pled no contest to the murders of Dick Humphreys, Troy Burress, and David Spears, saying that she wanted to, quote, get it right with God. And just like rambled on and everything. And then she said, quote, I wanted to confess to you that Richard Mallory did violently rape me, as I told you, but these others did not. They only began to start to. And apparently she just got like riled up and stuff because apparently she then turned to the state attorney's assistant and said, I hope your wife and children get raped in the ass. What the fuck? Eileen Warnos, everyone. Mm -hmm. Saying shit that scares people for decades. Right. Now skip to May 15th. And Judge Thomas Sawaya, I like how in one of the articles I read, it was like, handed her three more death sentences. I'm like, (laughs) interesting. And her response was calling him a motherfucker, basically. Oh, yeah. She went ham. Uh Uh-huh. And of course, all of Mallory's disgusting past he has was not brought up during that original trial. So they tried to be like, oh, can we have another trial? Because they should know about all this. Da, 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 da. 
But like the Supreme Court said, no, Mm -hmm. she's still going to be sentenced to death. She still murdered someone. Exactly. She murdered a lot of someone's. I would say, yeah, it would have been one thing like if she was Richard Mallory, like was raping me and I use self defense Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. never murdered another person. Right. But she did the same shit over and over and over. But then it was like funny to me because one her rebuttal to that would be like, but I've slept with hundreds of guys and I never killed them. And it's like, okay, but you killed these men and you're not Dexter. So sorry. Like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So one name you'll recognize that she was incarcerated at the same time was Judy Buenoano. That was one of the Black Widow murderers that we discussed a while back. She also was in there the same time as Deidre Hunt, Andrea Hicks Jackson, and Anna M. Cardona. So some of those names may or may not be familiar to you. The Judy episode, if you guys did not listen to that, definitely go check it out because it's a whole fucking thing. So, of course, like we kind of have mentioned throughout this, Eileen likes to change her stories up. Mm -hmm. She... When she started talking to staff more about the murders and stuff she did, every time she would kind of tweak her story a little bit to make herself sound better and sound like a victim, just a victim and a martyr and all this other crap. And it's like, Eileen, you're a serial killer. Not not saying, you know, the horrible things that happened to her when she's a child didn't happen or anything. But it's like, at the end of the day, you're still a serial killer. True. Interesting, though. Super close to her being executed, she pretty much was like, saying, oh, all that stuff I said about my grandparents and my dad, it's not true. She said, quote, my dad was so straight and clean, he wouldn't even take his shirt off to mow the lawn. I came from a clean and decent family. My dad blamed me for killing his wife. It was all my fault that she died, end quote. But didn't she have, like, cancer or something? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Well, she had liver failure. Her brother had cancer. Oh, right, 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 right. So basically... They eventually stopped using the electric chair for executions, and they switched to lethal injection. Mm -hmm. And this would be changed for Eileen. So Eileen was now slotted to be executed by lethal injection. At the time of her execution, she was 46 years old. She was wearing an orange t-shirt and blue pants and was 5'4 and 133 pounds. And she had her blonde hair. That would frame her face, but her eyes were said to be constantly bloodshot. Now, she denied having a last meal. She opted to have a single plain cup of coffee as her last meal. So that is what Eileen had. And the cell she was in was said to be eight feet by 10, and it was painted a dull looking pink, and that it had a high ceiling that was probably about 15 feet. And she also had a TV above the toilet on a brown shelf. And there was also a gray metal footlocker that doubled as a desk, but no table and only a single chair. And then, of course, you know, the metal frame bed, that kind of thing. I just thought that was kind of interesting because I never really thought about that. (laughs) You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, hmm, okay. And with... The like location on that. So, mm-hmm. just so you guys know, so she was originally incarcerated at the Florida Department of Corrections Broward Correctional Institution, which, you know, death row for women there. But then for execution, she was transferred to Florida State Prison. Mm. 
which, I mean, that's where fucking What's-His-Butt also met old Sparky, fucking Bundy. Oh, that's true. Right? But, I, but yeah, but he was actually like, it was actually old Sparky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, no. I'm saying they were executed at the same place. Yes. Yes. Because a lot yeah. of prisons, like, don't have, like, death rows. Exactly. No, they, no, he, yeah, he was executed there by old Sparky. Okay, so. Oh, and fun fact, at the time, it cost the state of Florida $72.39 a day to keep her incarcerated. Oh, wow. Yeah, right? I'm like, damn, that's high. So, okay. An interesting quote she said around the time she was close to her execution was, Death does not scare me. God will be beside me, taking me up with him when I leave this shell. I am sure of it. I have been forgiven and am certainly sound in Jesus' name. So there's that. She had a lot of, like, dueling ideologies. Yes, for sure. And what was interesting was they kind of talked about, when I was researching, like, her death row stuff, they talked about, like, Mm -hmm. what the day she was executed would have looked like. Do you want to hear it? What they said? Okay, this was if, like, it was old Sparky still. So, obviously, her head and her body would have to be shaved because of the, the electrode thingies attached to her. And then it says sanitary towels would have been forced into her vagina and rectum and cotton wool pushed into her nostrils and ears to prevent the leakage of bodily fluids. Mm-hmm. And in Florida, executioners are paid $150 per death or were. And basically, it's a four-second jolt of 2,000 volts is applied, followed by 1,000 volts for the next seven seconds, and finally, 200 volts for two minutes. Electrocution produces visibly destructive effects on the body as the internal organs are burned. And then it says the prisoner usually leaps forward against the restraints when the switch is thrown, the body changes color, swells, and may even catch fire. The dying person may also lose control of their bladder and bowels and vomit and blood. Yikes. I'm so glad Bundy went through that shit. Fuck him. <laughs> like, so. I was like, where, where are we going with that? Oh, yeah, no, Ted Bundy. Yes, yes, that. yes. Yeah, no kidding. Okay. So on Sunday, September 29th, she was transported over to Florida State Prison, like I mentioned earlier. And on Wednesday, October 9th, 2002, was when she had that last meal of that last coffee. And, you know, she woke up in a good mood. And this is when she was asked to leave her cell. And she agreed. She did not have to have any force from any of the guards. She just walked over to the chamber door. And it said that she paused momentarily when she saw the gurney with its white padding and cover sheet. Two arm supports were pulled out and she saw the brown straps dangling loose with an officer by each one. There were tears in her eyes. She didn't fight. There was said to be no resistance at all. She was very cooperative as they strapped her to the gurney. After that, the paramedics inserted two 16-gauge needles and catheters into her right and left arms, connected them with tubes to the executioner's equipment, which was hidden from view. And then the doctor also attached a cardiac monitor because obviously they have to pronounce him dead. Mm. So she was given a chance to say her final words. And her final words were, I'd just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th, like the movie, big mothership and all, I'll be back, end quote. And it was said that for someone 
such as Eileen, who went through lethal injection, that once that started and was administered, she would have felt a pressure in her chest, a suffocating feeling that causes her to gasp several times for air. She then actually coughed twice as her lungs collapsed. She was dizzy and hyperventilating, her heart beating faster and faster as the whole sympathetic nervous system was activated. This is called stress syndrome, a common feature during the first stages of dying. As the poison saturated her body, Lee entered the second stage of death. She was unable to move or breathe, but she could still see and hear. Paralyzed, she was not able to swallow at this stage, which often gives rise to witnesses who think that the inmate is already dead when they are not. So basically, during that short time, there's a bunch of stuff going on with her parasympathetic nervous system and her sympathetic nervous system, they begin to fail. Her eyes dilated and the hairs on her skin stood up. And this is when she was given another 15 cc of saline and finally a massive dose of potassium chloride. In large doses, this drug burns and hurts horribly because it is a salt and instantly throws off chemical balance of the blood, which it comes into contact. It makes all the muscles lock up in extreme contraction. However, it would not reach all of Lee's muscles. The moment it reaches her heart, it would stop dead. And there were a few minutes to wait, and then she was pronounced dead at 9.47 a.m. And the curtains were opened for the witnesses to view the deceased. And it was said that Eileen's ashes were scattered at a secret location in Fostoria, Michigan. It's in her best friend Don's backyard. Yeah. <laughs> I was like thinking that. I'm like, mm, spoilers. We No, in the documentary, the Don walks out to her backyard where there's a tree. And she's and it's like, like, I scattered here. her ashes here. Mm. It's not a secret. <laughs> or it's supposed to be a secret. Don's not good at keeping secrets. Right. All right. Well, guys, that is going to go ahead and wrap up our week on Eileen Warnos. Hopefully you learned something. I don't want to say you enjoyed because that always feels like gross. But hopefully you guys learned something. Thank you so much for listening. And those that requested this, hopefully we lived up to what you wanted. I don't know. (laughs) But anyways, we're going to go ahead and sign off. And we will see you guys on Monday. Bye. Bye.